Welcome to episode three of Community is a Verb. Our show talks about the tools for social action, social media, systems, processes, and strategies, uh, and the world that we want to create and we want to see in the future. My name is Connor Kaysen, your co-host here at Community is a Verb, and next to me, via the powers of the internet, is my spectacular co-host, Mr. Well-Traveled. Wow, well, spectacular today. I like that. <laughs> I need you like wherever I am, like when I step into a meeting at work and the spectacular <laughs> travel. That's what I need to hear because that'll get me hype. All right. So, yes, uh, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, this is the Social Action Podcast for allies, advocates, and activists. Well, I'm glad to see you again. Thank you for being flexible. We're recording a little bit later than we initially intended. That was my fault, but it's always great to see you, Mr. Well Traveled. And today's show is a first for us because we have our first ever guest on Community is a Verb. I'm excited to introduce Vanessa. She's the host of the Undefined Good Girls podcast, along with her co-host, uh, Ciara. The Ciara. Ciara. The show is about shattering, sh- excuse me, shattering the label of good girl and empowering women to discover their authentic and undefined lives. Vanessa, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. So excited to be joining you today on this episode. Well, we were inspired. I know we mentioned you in the last episode. Uh, Mr. Well Travel introduced your show to me and we we just loved so much about what you had to talk about. And so we thank you so much for being on the show. And I want to give you the platform to start off. Tell us a little bit about your show and I would love to know how you came up with the show and and what's it all about and what do you want to accomplish? Sure. So, um, of course, you mentioned um, my sister and I have a podcast, the Undefined Good Girls podcast. Actually, it kind of started as just my sister and I talking. Normally, when we get together, we spend hours chatting about life, chatting about our experiences, chatting about social issues. And we initially, I believe last year, um, sat together and we recorded kind of like a video recording of us just having a conversation. Nothing ever happened with that. We were kind of like, we had a great conversation. But of course, during the time of quarantine and us being together, we were both at my parents' house at that time. We were like, you know what? Let's go ahead and actually do something together. We're, my sister is a performer, so that's kind of what she does for a living. I also have like creative, you know, talents and inclinations. So we were like, you know, we want to create together. Let's do something. We haven't created together in a long time. So we were like, what if we do a podcast? And I was, you know, I was like, that's great. We can do that. I'm like, there's so many podcasts, you know, I don't know if our voice will, you know, make a difference, but I feel like we have something to say. So we kind of came up with the idea of the undefined good girls, because with both of us, we were raised in a very um, formal, strict type of um, conservative upbringing. But as we've kind of become adults and come into our own, we've discovered kind of breaking away from that label that a lot of people have placed on us and that we see a lot of women have placed on them throughout their lives. So that's kind of the idea of the title and what we talk about, just different topics. Um, It is a podcast geared towards women, but we get so much support from men, which is awesome. (laughs) Um, So we're like, hey, if you want to listen to it and you find something beneficial, that's great. But um, yeah, we kind of just wanted to put our voices out there. We've got some great feedback um, and that's kind of how it started. Well, I really like this show. I mean, I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll jump in after, after that. Well, I, I really enjoy the show. And I know you mentioned that it was for women, but 
having a different perspective is so important, especially now. I mean, always should have been at least. Yeah. And so hearing those things and hearing that different perspective, I think is very important. And so even if you are a man listening to this, I highly recommend that you also yes. tune into the show um, because, and, and you point this out in your most recent episode, it's very easy for a man not to understand the perspective and the things that women go through. And so it is very important to hear specifically from a woman about the things that they're going through. Uh, and we're going to talk later about the things that deal with their emotions or their body or their lives and the things that they go through are more important than ever to know. And so uh, I think there's a lot of insightful perspective to take from the show. Thanks. <laughs> So actually, I, that's good. I'm glad you said that because I, that's where I was going to jump in and say, I, I, I wonder from your perspective, Vanessa, what do you think is appealing about your show to men? Because I think initially when I started to see you promoted on Instagram, I thought, well, this must be a show that's for women. And, you know, that's a very like simplistic way of thinking about anything, right? It's called Undefined Good Girls Podcast. Must not be for me. Right. And it's something, It's like like when I heard someone recently say something about, they read an article about black banking and they were like, oh, well, I'm white, so therefore I, I can't go there. And it was, I'm like, well, actually it's a bank, so anyone can go and put their money in a bank. So, it, so I listened to the podcast and I was like, wow, I really like this dynamic so two sisters talking and then the perspectives and i think for me that's what i find appealing i don't think about it as you know whether it's for me or not or whether it's about women or for women i think about i want to hear what um the two people having the conversation really have to say about this particular topic so i know in the last episode you and uh, your sister talked about cuties and i didn't really have any interest in the movie at all but i actually really enjoyed hearing your different perspectives on it and, and sort of the journey that your um thinking went on in in uh as you reacted to not only what you heard uh, others say, but also then your own thought process as you were reacting to that, reacting to the clips you saw. And so I, I'm just curious, do you find that um, other men have the same perspective as Connor and I, or um, is it, I don't know, is it, what's it like? Yeah, I think um, one thing, and, and that's something I think as well, once we get further into conversation is clear, is that there are a lot of similarities or intersectionalities that men and women can come together on. And I think sometimes when we talk about, like we had a guy reach out to us and say, the topic on perfectionism, like really touched him because he has been a perfectionist in his life. And so even though we were talking about it from a woman's perspective in our own lives, you know, a man can, can talk about being a perfectionist or dealing with breaking from that, a people being a people pleaser. A man can have body issues and maybe have body issues in the way where you come up in two different families and, and navigating through that. So I think part of it is men finding the commonalities with what we're talking about. And I think some of them just enjoy that we're very candid about, about it. Um, one thing that's very important to us is that we're like, okay, do, we don't wanna sound like we're bashing men. <laughs> in any way like we're, we're trying to be careful like even if we're calling men to be accountable that we're not coming across as like hateful 
And so I think um, that is a way that men are still able to hear it and maybe hear some tough things we're talking about. But understanding that we want us all to win. We want women to win, you know, same as, as um, RBG, that ideology of like, when women win, men can win and we can go forward. So I think um, that is why men <laughs> have listened. But it, it was a shock to me. I was not expecting um, to have men like reach out to us and, and say, you know, great job. You know, we enjoy what you're doing. So. Yeah, I think it, it's always important to have that perspective and learn different things and speak to different people. And you brought up the uh, learning how to critique or criticize or evaluate and give commentary on lots of different aspects of life, especially aspects that are highly opinionated and can get really intense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we're all learning how to deal with using our language in the right way so we can be constructive, uh, but not attack so much right and because right. uh, that really is how we are going to grow as individuals as a community as a society is we got to be able to listen to the feedback that we're getting and uh you know the show is all about action so taking action against that critical feedback that you get right all right so we've got two short segments that we like to start the show off with before we get into our major topics the first one is our shout outs section of the show and so Mr. Will Travis, I'll let you start off. What's your shout out for someone in the community this week? I actually have three and they'll be quick. Uh, I came across a great new podcast and IG account called Ballot Defenders and I really enjoyed it. They followed me and so I was like, oh, well, that's great. They're so nice. They followed me. But also um, they had a great uh, conversation in their first episode about RBG and that uh, helped me to get some additional perspective that I didn't have before. Um, so I want to shout them out. Also Cali Music, uh, a great account uh, that uh, has a new single. So Callie is the artist and she has a new single called Unicorn and I enjoyed it and I've been listening to it and it's kind of in my head because it's one of those kind of like pop songs that like it's very like light and uplifting and then it, you don't forget it. And so I've been listening <laughs> to Unicorn all week. And of course, uh, I also want to shout out Tyree who's sitting right here uh, because Tyree has been really helpful. Um, I don't know if everyone knows this, but I'll be taking a road trip soon. Um, and that road trip is go I'm going to Texas and I'm going to be spending um, some time there and I'll be recording the next couple of episodes there. And when I am there, I need to have a certain level of equipment to be able to uh, ensure the same level of sound quality. So Tyree did a great job in telling me what I need to get. And right after this, you'll see this on the, the Instagram story uh, that we're going to go through the equipment and kind of he's going to teach me how to set it up because I don't know anything actually about audio engineering and that's his specialty. So I'm excited about that. Um, and yeah, those are my three shout outs. Vanessa, do you have anyone that you'd like to shout out this week? Hmm, let's see. Um, I would like to shout out one of my friends. Her name is Taisha on Instagram. She's Ty Talks. Um, she actually has a single coming out. So when you're kind of mentioning singles, um, October the 10th, but I've just been hearing little snippets of it and I love it. She is a beautiful spirit. She is all about empowerment and mindfulness and releasing negativity and inviting positivity and manifestation into your life. So her song is about letting it go releasing and you know welcoming better and so i'd love to shout out her we go way back um i've known her since middle school so i'm really proud of her and seeing the woman that she's become so shout out to you taisha excellent i'm looking forward to i gotta go listen to both those songs obviously i want to give a shout out to amanda 
at Coca Amley. She did our podcast artwork that we just launched this week. And so she deserves a shout out uh, for creating that. It was just super fun and nice of her to do that for us. And we feel that it just represented us in a very cool way. It was unique. It made us feel a little bit more official when we had like real <laughs> podcast artwork and we didn't yeah. just have a, a Canva template with text on that. So that was great. Thank you very much, Amanda. So the next part of the show, Con we Connor, actually- Hold on, before you move on, I just wanna say, yes, th th shout out to Amanda, because let me tell you, the feedback I've gotten on the artwork, people have <laughs> been like in my DMs, like, oh my gosh, you look at you, you've got this show. I'm like, wait, the show, we're on episode three now. <laughs> but it's the artwork, I'm telling you, the artwork changed the game. I yeah. love the artwork, it's, it's very, um, I, I, like you said, it makes people feel like it's official, I guess, and it's something that's like more of a trademark, but I think it's awesome. I love how it turned out. <laughs> so, <laughs> Vanessa, I was looking at your artwork and yours is kind of similar with it, this like yeah. modern art style that like uh, kind of, it's like a flat design with yeah. a minimal facial recognition. So, right. so how did you come up with your artwork and how did that get created? Because it is kind of like a similar style. Yeah, so we also use Canva. Um, so that may be why it has a similar, you know, design features, but um, we were kind of, I was kind of looking at different minimalistic people because I was like, I don't want to have myself, like I'm on a LinkedIn <laughs> profile picture as my, I just was like, I don't want to do that. I'm still getting comfortable with like putting myself, my actual self out there. So for me, I guess it was kind of a comfort thing. Like, I don't want to put my face, but let's make up, you know, people that kind of represent us. So that's all I did. I was looking for someone that I felt an image that kind of represented my sister and her style and look, and then one that might've represented mine. And I was like, okay, these two girls will work. Do you like them? Um, we initially had like a design where the girls had like their fist up and we were like, oh, we don't know if we want to do this. We were asking people for different feedback because, you know, while we will talk about different topics, we didn't want to start off with people thinking it was like a militant podcast or a radicalized podcast, even if we do discuss things like that going further. Um, so we kind of came up with that where it was more relaxed, general. And then I had the idea of, because I don't know if you see on the design, there's halos above the girl's head and then has an X. Yep. So I was like, let's do that because it's called the undefined good girl. So we're like shattering that. So I love that little detail. Yeah. The, the halo with the X really sticks out in our work. Yeah. All right. So for the next segment of the show, Vanessa, we actually took this from you. It was inspired by your show because you and your sister always start off your show with just a check-in with each other, mm -hmm. which I assume it was a very natural process because that's what you do when, when you were talking to each other anyways, yeah. right? Yes. And so let's start with our check-ins. And the thing that I'll start off with was uh, this, this week, Attorney General William Barr deemed Seattle, <laughs> New York, and Portland as anarchist jurisdictions, right? Which to me just blew my mind because when I saw that, I was like, last night I went out for a picnic at the park, <laughs> right? Like my wife and I, got food from a restaurant and we sat at the park and like had a nice little date with each other. And so when you say anarchist jurisdiction, you think it we're like in a horror movie right. or you know, like a war zone. And that's not what it is at all. And obviously that's based off uh, events that happened three months ago in Capitol Hill at CHOP, right? And CHOP got dismantled over two months ago. Uh, and so it's just kind of like, what's going on? Like, yes, there are protests and rightfully so, but to, uh, really put our city and our state at risk when it comes to funding by giving it that jurisdiction 
uh, was something that I, I had to bring up on the show because I think it's extremely inappropriate uh, and unfair and a, seems like a very strong political move. And it's like, it's, it's not like that. And it's unfortunate. I get calls from I have family in Idaho and California and in New York. And they're like, are you okay? Is something wrong? Like what's going on? And, and same thing. Uh, I, my dad called me and I was like, we're, we're at the park eating dinner right now. Right. It's right. not this, this scary place. Um, and so that was my big thing that happened this week that just kind of blew my mind. And it, it's very sad that that happens. And I really am praying that that doesn't have long-term consequences on the funding because those dollars are extremely important. They go to very important programs that help the citizens of the state and the city. And I hope that it doesn't turn into something worse. So, What's you want that? to jump in Israel child? Sorry. <laughs> I'm just, you know, just even like this listening to this, it's just, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like, I remember when I think were you the first person to tell me about anarch? I think you did. I think you like texted me or something. Like you're like anarchist jurisdiction. I, I like I I didn't even understand what that meant. So I had to Google it because I, I it, it wasn't clear to me what even that was in reference to. Um, yeah, I mean I, you know, Capitol Hill is my neighborhood, so <laughs> I've been around and i'm i'm aware of uh the protests uh that have never really stopped um but anarchy is not what's happening out there and i think um as a political ploy it is very misleading to go on international tv and use the power of the federal government to label a specific city and neighborhood as an anarchist jurisdiction knowing that then it can be tied to funding for that city but also um that no unless you are actually here on the ground because there are people who live in the region who are not as clear about what happened at Chaz Chop uh, several months ago, um, because I've 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 talked to my coworkers who live in the suburbs, and you know that's just one county away, and they hear the same news and think the same have the same reaction as folks who are you know halfway across the country. So um, when I read the article, I, I I think it was Washington Post or New York Times or one of those, and I thought to myself, hmm. Okay, well, this is um, getting more serious, I think, because I think there was, my initial reaction was, oh, okay, well, more of the same. But then when I saw the tie to funding, that's when I said, okay, this is really, really serious because before it was just rhetoric. Now it's a, a clear action that I really don't know what we as individuals can do ab about it. Because I think that was my, my, my real question was, okay, if funding is impacted, what do the people do? How do the people deal with this? And I still am not sure because I don't think we have enough information right now about it. But um, I did listen to a really uh, interesting episode of Seattle Now podcast, and uh, they, <laughs> they had some jokes about the anarchist jur jurisdiction. And I think sometimes that's the best thing you can do, right? Like to, to cope with a, a really unclear and, and potentially, you know, stressful situation is, is, is to try to use a little, little humor to get through it. And so um, I think 
you know, that's where I am right now is I'm, I'm trying to have a little humor about the situation. But my hope is that there are no further actions, that this is really just a political stunt and that funding is not impacted. Yeah, I saw shirts that already have them printed that people are selling to, to do fundraisers. So already. Uh, wow. But, yeah, once, good. once you take it into the shirt and, and the city kind of embraces that, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> nice to take it, you know, to, to laugh it off or just hope that it doesn't turn into something something worse. Yeah. And so that's a, how, how's your week been going? How are you doing? Um, it's been an interesting week. Um, obviously here in North Carolina, we haven't been giving, given that um, <laughs> designation, <laughs> but, um, you know, just with everything that's kind of going on, I feel like every month is something new of just worldwide or, or countrywide um, shock or news that we're experiencing. So um, overall, it's been okay. I am, I think I mentioned to you both that I'm going to be planning to move. So I've been doing a lot of getting stuff together, getting packed. And it's really interesting. I think for me, this year has been a mixture of the worst moments ever, but I'm still also having really great positive moments and um, seeing, you know, different increases in my own personal life. So it's kind of interesting to live in that parallel. <laughs> but um, yeah, overall, my week has been been okay. I've, I've been trying to just take some time for myself if I'm feeling overwhelmed by the news or things that's going on, but um, just moving forward. Getting into a new house or new apartment, just having a new home and a new space. Yes. It, it kind of sounds like a scary time to be doing that, given, given the pandemic. But yeah. it's also probably so refreshing, A, to get more oh, space, yeah. but yeah. really just to have something new, right? Something to be excited about, reorganize, yeah. reposition, uh, wake up in the morning and be like, ooh, this feels fresh and unique. And that, that's yes. probably really nice to have, given all the things that are happening in the world. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm excited to have a designated office, office space. Um, since I mentioned to you that I work from home full time now, um, even before the pandemic, I was doing that. So it's nice to be able to set that up. I'll have like a nice backyard that I can kind of go out and sit and just have peace and quiet. <laughs> so excited about that. Uh, congratulations. I'm sure you'll be documenting a little bit on your Instagram account too. I'll yes. To link your Instagram here on the notes. Yes. Anyone's interested in following her there? So we also had uh, National Voter Registration Day, which was this past Tuesday. Uh, I'm not sure if you have any comments, but I, I might have seen that voter registration got extended in a lot of places, but maybe I'm wrong and I'm speaking out of place. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you have information on that, uh, but obviously that's different by state. Um, so that was particularly here. And then uh, lastly, a bunch of protests, new protests sparked uh, this week in cities all around the country, uh, or I guess continued. And that was because uh, this past Wednesday, the Breonna Taylor case went to the grand jury and the news wasn't very good. Not what a lot of us wanted to see, uh, specifically with, a, I wanna make sure that I get this right, but they indicted former officer Brett Hankinson on three counts of wanton endangerment for firing bullets that went into the apartment next to Breonna Taylor's uh, on March 13th, and there was no indictment against Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly and Detective Miles Cosgrove, who actually fired the bullets who killed Breonna Taylor, um, which uh, created a whole nother level Louisiana, Louisiana, I'm sorry, in Kentucky. Uh, we saw them here in Seattle and kind of all around the country. And so how are you guys feeling about 
the outcome and the the protests that are going on around the city now. How about Vanessa? You start. I say, yeah, I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, not the result that we most of us wanted to hear with this case. Um, I wish that I could say at this point I was surprised, <laughs> but you know, it's still just heartbreaking because more than anything, you know, this is her family that has to see in her, you know, case in her matter, there won't be any justice in this way. Um, I just think the whole story and just in reading about the background, the case leading up to this, who Breonna Taylor was, it really is so unfortunate because this was a woman who was, you know, she was getting educated. I believe she was the first in her family to graduate high school. Um, she was going forward with figuring out her life the same way that many of us are, you know, maybe starting a job and then saying, oh, I don't know if I want to do that job. And then finding a new path and trying to date and find someone who, you know, is going to be a good partner for you. And maybe you run into someone who isn't. And then, you know, I think she was living life in the same way that many of us are living life. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, in this issue, in this situation, her being um, murdered and wrongfully so, I feel um, just kind of being in that wrong place at the wrong time, really, and who the, the police were actually looking for and that sort of thing. So it really is unfortunate that her life um, has now been lost because of this. Um, we do see like the protests. We're having protests as well here in Raleigh and Durham. Um, we actually were put on a curfew, I believe, yesterday um, with the protests and things. So it's it's disheartening. It's, I don't know, as, as a Black woman, it's emotional. Um, and it just makes me want to see change and, and figure out what I can do. Um, what what impact can I have? What impact can we have around the country? Because I feel like so many of us have tried to speak out and we're still hitting a brick wall in a lot of ways. Mr. Well Travel, how are you feeling about it? Uh, well, I would say like Vanessa, my reaction wasn't one of surprise, certainly. Um, but then I think immediately I wanted to um, go to action because that tends to be where my mind goes. Uh, but first, before getting to action, was what do I need to know about this specific situation? So I did listen to a couple, about three actually, uh, New York Times podcast. Um, so there's a, a show called The Daily, and I was able to listen to The Killing of Breonna, Breonna Taylor Parts 1 and 2, which came out actually a couple of weeks ago. So it was prior to the verdict. And what was particularly interesting was that there was a very deep exploration of Breonna Taylor's life, but then also the circumstances surrounding um, the uh I, I guess um, the execution of a warrant. And I, I think that the podcast drives you to a very particular conclusion that uh, we have a legal standard that actually in this particular context favors the police over um, the victim. And once I understood that part, then I'd listened to the uh, episode of The Daily that came out the day after uh, the verdict, and it's called On the Ground in Louisville. And 
you go through the motions of what the journalist is experiencing on the day of the verdict and what she's seeing and you know what she heard when she was at the press conference and i realized that there is a big disconnect right between what we think should be happening and what is actually going to happen and i think that's that i was left with this sense of okay what do we do now how do we prevent this from happening to someone else there is a legal framework that i think we must dismantle and must think about an approach to dismantling uh, that will help to favor the victim uh, the next time this happens because history has shown us that this is not something that will stop happening and i don't think anyone wants to be in the position of the taylor family. I don't think anyone wants to see a family member not get justice when there is clearly wrong done. But there is that disconnect. And we've got to figure out how not to have that. Yeah, I completely agree and echo what both of you have to share that it wasn't necessarily a surprise because of the laws that are always in place. And those are really the things that uh, need to be addressed and changed because uh, I I think we probably can all agree that unfortunately we feel like this is probably going to happen again and that something needs to change and be implemented so it doesn't happen in the future. Right. And that people are held accountable because for the only accountability to be held is for the bullets that missed is really not right. Right. And, and I can't imagine anyone hear that statement and think, Anything with them, well, we're all we're all thinking, right? That's that's right. unfair. That's unjust. That's not right. And we, we need to do something. Uh, it's it's going to take time. It's really going to take time uh, to put leadership in place and to change the laws, change the rules around the country, so that uh, police officers are held accountable for their actions because uh, their power has gone unchecked, and that is not uh, what America is supposed to be built on. Right. These are the powers that uh, we as taxpayers pay to protect us as a society. And they're not. And that needs to change. I, I, it's, it's hard for me to even understand that people won't agree with that statement. Right. And I think um, kind of touching on what Mr. Well-Traveled mentioned with the daily podcast, I also listened to both of those episodes and they were really informative for me and understanding more about the particulars of the case leading up to the the situation. Um, one thing that stands out for me, because of course I was thinking, what is some action that we can see that can be taken? You have people that are saying defund the police and different comments like these. Um, one thing that was interesting that that podcast highlighted is when they were talking about the increase of crime in that region, um, they implemented a large number of like police setups, police raids all around the region to try to combat what was going on. And that stood out to me because it's like, you have a, lot, a high number of crime or poverty or whatever it is that's going on and your way to address it is, let's throw more police at it. <laughs> and knowing what police do and, and you know the distrust. And so I think I was looking up like, um, social disorganization theory. A lot of my, so my background is social work. So I kind of think 
from a lot of those biopsychosocial um, issues that may come up. And I would love to see more communities look at the issue of crime um, at more of the root cause. What is causing you know, these individuals in these regions to sell drugs? A lot of times they're trying to make money because they're in poverty, they don't have opportunities. Um, I would love to see more of a collaboration of putting in social programs, um, community programs that can assist, be it job development, creating job skills, creating um, apprenticeships. Um, so much that can be done in these communities and the money, if we want to take the money from one area and put it into another, that I would have loved to see be the first reaction before you say, let's just add more cops on, on these um, streets that are just going to harass and accost people, which is going to cause more unrest and can cause situations to happen. Um, I would love to see just addressing the change from that point. Even if you do want to still have, you know, law enforcement, pairing them with community leaders, with social workers, with um, mental health workers out on the street when they are going and dealing with these things. It's so much that I think can be step one for these communities before it's let's just increase our police, um, police um, presence everywhere. Um, that was something that really stood out to me because these communities are hurting in a lot of those ways and adding more police, I don't think is going to solve that. Yeah, I agree. So I want to go back. You brought up the um, social disorganization theory. And for everyone mm -hmm. listening, uh, what that is, is, is a theory. And, and uh, Mr. Well Traveled and I always love these different theories and systems. So I wanted to bring it up and explain it. But uh, the article that you shared with us, it describes it. It seeks to explain community differences in crime rates, right? And uh, identify the different characteristics in communities with high crime rates. And then uh, how the society kind of explains these characteristics to contribute to crime, uh, right? And a lot of it always comes back to racism, right? Like yeah. how specific communities got put, uh, whether it was in the inner city or uh, w wherever you are and how uh, groups are discriminated against, they kind of bundle together and, and put yeah. in position, uh, whether it's uh, desperation or need or lack of resources that elevate those levels of crime uh, because they're put in a much more difficult situation. Right. Mr. Well Traveled, I wanted to ask you about some of your thoughts about this theory, because you're always the person that I go to when it's like, oh, we got a different system or theory or concept or idea. Uh, what, what do you think about it? Uh, well, I didn't know, actually, interestingly enough, uh, that your background was social work, uh, Vanessa, because actually my uh, undergrad is in sociology. So oh, I, nice. <laughs> I'm always, and that's what I, when I was a student at North Carolina A&T, my major was social work, actually. So oh, cool. uh, I originally had a, had dreams of being a social worker. A <laughs> as we all do. As, as we all do. Changing the world. Work, changing the world, all of that. And well, um, yeah. other, th other things. <laughs> Actually, you know, the, 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 the long and short of it is it was faster to get a degree in sociology than it was social work when I transferred schools because social work uh, licensure is different in Texas versus North Carolina. And so I would have had to take more courses and I just, I was ready to graduate. So yeah, <laughs> um, I, I studied sociology, but I really appreciated uh, the background and grounding that I got in social work. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think what I what I react to probably most strongly is um, understanding how um, our society has developed in particular, 
um, the neighborhoods, right, that we talk about as being these high crime areas and that there is no uh, evidence that more police actually um, prevents crime or addresses root cause of crime. And I've been very strong in my belief that we have to address root cause and how we address root cause actually is about addressing um, the inequality and inequities that exist within our broader society. Because we can't say that we have to address crime without addressing opportunity and access to jobs and to healthcare and to food and all of the things that people need at a very basic human level. So um, I think Part of the challenge is that we continue to have conversations about the police, what the police are doing wrong, what the police need to do. Um, but that is something for me, uh, I feel is a distraction because we actually have uh, the Kerner Commission report from the 1960s that actually outlines very clearly uh, the steps that we need to take and the things that we should be thinking about in terms of um, addressing not police, but actually the communities that are affected by police um, brutality and negative police interactions. And they're all focused on addressing the social determinants of people's lives. Uh, the challenge, though, I think uh, right now is that we continue to have a, a, the same conversation that we've actually been having in, um, from a policy perspective for over 100 years now. There have been police, uh, sorry, there have been presidential commissions that have existed since the early 1900s to address this very issue because this issue is not a new one it's been going on for hundreds of years and we might be entering a conversation at a point at which social media exists so we can view it in a very different way but the uh, root cause of the problem is the same and i think for me i really want to have that conversation I am very clear that when we think about a things that we need that we want to see done differently, we also have to think about how do we get there. So we may have a vision for a particular uh, standard or a particular way of uh, interacting with our public safety officials, but the path to getting to that needs to be. Um, clearly outlined, and then we have to take the action of voting in the right people who can help us take the steps towards getting there and continue to repeat that process and be, I think, oddly enough, uh, I think we have to be more invested and engaged in educating ourselves about policy and about law because part of what I see as the, um, the emotional connection to uh, the verdict is that many of us, and I'll include myself in this, actually didn't know how the law would look at the situation differently than how we actually look at the situation. Those of us who are not in law enforcement, those of us who are not in government or uh, politicians or lawyers. And because that disconnect exists, that requires us to do some additional work 
so that we can make sure that we're driving our politicians and our support and our and, and our dollars because we're also folks who are uh, making donations to organizations that are going to help us get where we want to go um, to make sure that we're driving towards the right things. Um, so I think for me, when I hear um, a a theory that's introduced that helps us to really frame the issue properly, I think that that's very helpful to us. And we should probably make sure that um, we are bringing that back up the next time we have to have a conversation about police brutality, because we will be back on this topic again very soon, maybe even next episode, because unfortunately, police brutality is the standard. Yeah. Oh man, that that statement that you ended there just just hurts, right? Like yeah. that that's the standard is is just a, a terrible, unfortunate reality. And I, w- I wanted to bring up because Vanessa, you shared another article with us that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't known, um, and it was from Vice, and it talked about different programs that cities have uh, implemented or experimented with around the country, and and one of the examples. Uh, I didn't even know about, I went to school in Eugene, Oregon, and I had no clue about this program called CAHOOTS, which I thought was a little weird of a name, Uh, but it stands for the Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. And in 2018, uh, they said that CAHOOTS executed 24,000 responses um, in their neighborhoods, which were about 20% of the local 911 calls. And uh, they weren't sending out uh, police officers. Instead, they were sending out um, uh, mental health experts to deal with these crises. And it actually, um, A, send, saved a ton of money, but also uh, lowered uh, people showing up in the ER and really had a much bigger, more helpful impact. Um, I'm curious just more about what you thought about the article and maybe some of the points that you wanted to share uh, regarding. Yeah, I, I really um, enjoyed that article because it kind of um, solidified the thinking that I was having of just the reactions that, you know, law enforcement have been having with people on, sh- on the streets and seeing this happen so many times. And I'm like, this could have ended so much differently. Why are we escalating to this point? Um, I really enjoyed reading the fact that there are a lot of cities who already are implementing ways of bridging the gap. So while they may not you know, come from the idea of completely getting rid of law enforcement. They're saying what ways can we supplement with law enforcement or even replace the response from law enforcement to have someone else. Um, I think one of the biggest things that would be helpful to um, law enforcement would be for them to become um, mental health first aid certified. So that's an actual certification that I've held. Um, I actually need to get get it renewed. It's very similar to when you get certified as a first aid. (laughs) Um, It's very similar to that, but it's a mental health response certification. So if you come upon a person and they're having a mental health crisis, what do you need to do in that situation to help de-escalate the situation to assist them in the same way that if you see someone choking in a restaurant you would administer the first aid response um it's really interesting to me that law enforcement has no requirement of that (laughs) has no requirement of you know certain levels of societal awareness that i think you know the things that i kind of learned in school and i'm because in a lot of cases i may have gone and 
into people's homes and having to deal with them and learn how to deescalate the situation, I feel like even more so, you know, law enforcement needs to know these types of tools and tactics. So I really like the article because if they aren't going to initially start there and get certified, bring someone with you then that's certified. So that maybe if you pull up on a person out on the street, you know, you may say they're being destructive initially, but that person may be able to say, you know, that person is having a manic episode or something else may be going on, or especially on cases where, um, I think I was reading an article about a situation where the person was telling the police, this is my brother and they have mental illness and this is what's going on. And there still was an altercation. So it's kind of like, I wanna see more thought in that. I wanna see less just reaction immediate and more of breaking down, what can we do? We see it with other <laughs> races, the time taken to really get down to what's going on. I really want to see that with more Black people and Brown people of law enforcement, mental health workers, a lot of these individuals, first kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. What is going on in this situation? How can we de-escalate it before we're ending up with a dead person on our hands? Yeah, uh, a quote that was really great in the article, it was a quote from Barry Friedman, who runs the New York University's policing project. And he says that we have one size fits all policing, mm -hmm. right? And that's really one of the big roots of the problem. And he says that uh, police aren't trained to do a lot of things that they end up doing, right? 911 calls have such a wide array of circumstances and things that are happening. And so when we train police officers uh, to use force and law, then we're gonna get re results that resemble force and law. And there's so many cases of 911 calls that don't require that kind of action. And so we need to, uh, whether it's provide police or train police or have other experts to address all those different issues. Um, that, that sounds to me like it's going to be one of the primary changes uh, and sounds like one of the easiest changes because we have examples around the country, like the one in Eugene that's been going on for 30 years, right? So there are examples of how to do it and uh, they even proved that it saves money, which is an even better thing, right? Because then you can take those dollars and put them in other places to benefit the community. Mr. Wiltrout, we haven't heard from you in a second. You got any thoughts from there? Uh, you know, the only thing that I, I would add to that, I mean, I, I think you both um, articulated um, a great points and uh, a position I am totally um, in agreement with. The only thing I would add to that is that I think we have to reimagine what safety is and means in our society. Um, I've talked to so many friends and family about this issue. So this, so this is going to be anecdotal, right? Like I don't have, I, I'm not bringing the evidence here. I'm just, I'm speaking from conversations and I find that immediately when the conversation of the police comes up, it's about uh, particularly in a reaction to what protesters have demanded, whether it's abolishing the police or defunding the police. I've, I've heard these reactions of, well, we need the police. What are we going to do if we, if we make these changes to policing? And I always kind of wait until the person has said what they've had to say. And I say, well, here's the thing. Police are not the causes of the crime. Police are also not in the position to prevent crime. In fact, something has to happen. So whatever thing you think in your mind, whether it's a murder or rape or whatever, a theft, that has to happen first before the police can intervene. So if we know that these things 
these crimes can exist. And also there's sometimes police involved in things that are not criminal at all. In fact, that's what Vanessa was really speaking to about uh, mental health issues. In many of the cases, there is no crime that has occurred actually. Um, and to, to also be clear, police are not responsible for determining whether or not your punishment should be given to you that moment, right? That their, their job is to investigate. Their job is to determine whether you need to be taken to jail because you are suspected of having done something. And then a judge, a court system, a jury, that's where you're, uh, you're actually convicted of a crime and then your punishment is given. So I think when we are talking about police, what is it that they are supposed to do? What is their job? And if their job involves things that we as a society think that maybe that should be somebody else's job, we need to have programs that allow us to shift that burden elsewhere. And I think um, in order to understand that, it's also about determining, okay, well, then what, what, what is safety? What, what does safety look like? And I think for me, the first thing that I, comes to my mind is something that has nothing to do with police, nothing to do with criminal activity. It, it's about, for me, food. That's, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. The next thing, housing. The next thing, clean water. <laughs> next thing, clean air. Because the fact of the matter is, when you have your basic needs that are, that are met, there are some things that you won't have to worry about, and they will not lead you into a, a situation in which you would somehow come into contact with law enforcement. And I see that as a part of safety. Building a safe community is ensuring that everyone in your community has their basic needs met first. Um, I, I don't know how we start to have a broader conversation about the definition of safety, but that's, that's what I would like to add, I think, to, to our discussion and to any discussion. I think, um, you know, I'm not in a, I am a voter like anyone else. So those are the things that are in my mind and that I bring to the table. Um, but I know that that's not how everyone sees it. And so I think if anyone ever asks me, that's, that's what I'm going to offer. Great. Thank you very much. Um, okay, we got to transition because, uh, yeah, I'm looking at the time. Uh, I love how we get into these deep, deep conversations. It's kind of uh, actually like how this show all started was Mr. Wallet Traveler and I, uh, sometimes we start topics and we're like, oh, we, we came to talk about this. And then three hours later, we hadn't even talked about it yet. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's maybe what added to the procrastination of us starting the show in general is because we got uh, deep into other great conversations. So, we want to talk in this section of the show about three specific people, three uh, very important people that we've lost in the last month. And so let's start with uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away at the age of 87. She was the legal architect of uh, the fight for women's rights in the 1970s. She served on the Supreme Court for 27 years, and uh, she was pretty much the most prominent member of the Supreme Court, uh, especially recently because she also became like a pop culture phenomenon uh, here in, with the notorious RBG concept with the crown, which was just amazing. Uh, it's really cool to see someone in that position become like transcend their, um, 
their power and their position within the government to like really become this public figure that we all know about. I don't really know, or I didn't know any other Supreme Court justice before her, right? And to for her to become that well-known, and I think it's, uh, although very unfortunate in the circumstances and that she passed away, um, she leaves an incredible legacy, right? And I think it's important to for us to uh, acknowledge her legacy uh, and, and speak about her. And the show is really about um, talking about history and the things that we're living through right now. So we want to make sure we honor her. So uh, Vanessa, how about we start with you? How about you share some words about what you think about the late, great RBG? Yeah, so, you know, of course, getting the call, it's, I'm like every month or, you know, the weeks come and if someone's calling me and it's late at night, I'm like, it's probably, you know, like, what are they about to tell me? So, you know, I get the call and they're like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And it's crazy because the first thing that I was thinking, which is really sad is, oh my God, you know, her seat's open. Who's going to fill it? What's going to happen? And then it was like, hold on, let's pause. We just lost someone, you know, we just lost a life. And so I had to tell myself, let's back up and let's be honoring and reverent of that. Um, but, you know, RBG was a powerhouse. And I, I really love what she represents because she wasn't a powerhouse, I think, in the way people normally define them. She wasn't a, you know, gregarious personality. She wasn't... Um, a radical, so to speak. She was very much true to herself. She may have come across as reserved to a lot of people, but she was very unrelenting in her convictions. And I think that's what makes her a powerhouse. And I think that's what has helped her get the things accomplished that she's gotten accomplished. Um, she's gotten so much um, done for women's rights, um, for gender equality rights. And I just really, you know, I think we'll definitely feel her absence and what she has done and having someone on the Supreme, Supreme Court, especially at this time, who represented what she represented. Um, but I really enjoyed like hearing more about her life. Um, I rewatched her documentary and I'm just like, this is an amazing woman who really fought so many odds from the beginning and just was, was consistent. And I think that's, something difficult to find or even something difficult for me to fathom in wanting to, you know, implement social action. Someone who is consistent and has that brick by brick uh, mentality, which I think she really embodied. So she will, she will be missed in, in what she's done for our country and for policy. Mr. Well Traveled, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so I think, um, my initial reaction was not one of surprise, uh, much like I guess some of the uh, other reactions this week. Uh, was and I think it was because I knew that she was battling cancer, so I understood that. And I think what I was surprised about was how quickly the conversation went from she has passed away to what's going to happen with her seat. Uh, because she hasn't even been buried yet. Um, right. <laughs> and I I think that part has been more surprising to me as I, as I have seen that even yesterday there was an announcement of, about um, a, uh, what's the word? I was gonna say candidate. I don't think that's the right word though. Um, 
I guess yeah, a nomination. Nominee. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was like, why is the word escaping me? A nominee for her seat. I mean, we're, we're talking a week and a day um, after her passing. And I, I, I don't know. Something strikes me about that as um, cruel. Um, the the idea that we are not given a moment to honor her life and and legacy, I I think is, um, yeah, I, I I don't know that that's the right standard for our society. Uh, to I don't know that I don't know that I feel comfortable with that being the way that we do things. Uh, that being said, that's what has happened, and I've taken the approach uh, that I wanted to learn more about her life because, uh, you know. Maybe I'm a little bit of different in, in, in the sense of Connor in, in that I um, knew about Thurgood Marshall and grew up knowing about Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, he, outside of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, probably is the only other justice that I have heard a lot about in a pop culture fashion. I mean, there's a movie that Chadwick Boseman did about his life, right? So you, you can receive him in the same way you would a... Um, uh, a, you know, a, a celebrity, and yet he was a Supreme Court justice. And um, so I knew of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a celebrity in, in a sense, because so much of, um, there was so much imagery uh, around her. And uh, like Vanessa, I watched the RBG um, documentary and they talk about that, that that was something that happened much later in her life. She wasn't always this, you know, pop culture icon. She was in her 60s and then 70s and then moving into 80s. And people began to really, you know, um, just take an interest in who she was and what she represented. And while I can appreciate that, there was a comment in one of the podcasts that I listened to about her life this week. And there was someone who was reacting to her death and she said, you know, I, I really am, I really wondered, what am I going to do now? What are we going to do now? And what's going to, you know, what's going to happen to us because she's gone. And then the person said, well, you know, I really had to think about that for a second that we, we create superheroes out of, out of people. And I, th I think that that's a good point to make that um, we do tend to create superheroes out of individuals. And when I looked at her life on film, right, in the documentary, there were some incredible sacrifices that she made. She had a very supportive husband, but she didn't have for the time that she lived in, right, uh, which is partly our time, but, you know, her marriage started in the 1950s and her during that time, it was not the norm to have men um, be the be the homemaker, essentially. And she had her husband leave his job so that she could have the career and move move from New York to D.C. And I think about that um, because that's a sacrifice, right, to determine how your marriage is going to work. And it was wonderful that her husband supported her through that. But there are also other sacrifices that they mentioned throughout the film. Like she didn't sleep a lot. That was something that came up a lot that she tried to have a balanced life, but she was often up until four o'clock in the morning. And when Vanessa, you spoke about consistency, that also was very clear that she understood what her purpose was and what she wanted to accomplish in her career. And she stuck with that from the very beginning. And I think, you know, 
it's hard in the world that we live in today to understand that methodical and multi-decade approach to uh, social action and making change. And in fact, I think there was a moment in uh, the film where someone described it as very a very conservative approach to change. But the, the and, and I think that today we live in a world where things are so on demand for us. We can have whatever we want with just a click of a couple buttons on our phone that sometimes it seems as if change should happen immediately. And I think that was not her approach. And she understood that that was not how it was going to work, but she also didn't give up even when there were setbacks, including during the latter part of her career on the Supreme Court where she was considered to be the most liberal justice and there were more conservative justices on the bench. and. What made her famous was her um, dissent. And I think about that as also a way to will change, even when you may think you are outnumbered or um, overpowered or overruled, you still have a way of using your voice to affect change. And I think there was no better example of that than the Lilly Ledbetter Act and how the Supreme Court made a decision that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not agree with. So she wrote a dissent, which then led to congressional action. And then Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Act into law. And we also heard from Lilly Ledbetter. There's a lot of L's in <laughs> It's a tongue twister. That's <laughs> yeah, a, little, a little much. Um, a little much. Uh, so we heard from her in the film as well, as, as, along with other uh, women who were plaintiffs in uh, cases that either went to the Supreme Court uh, while um, Justice Ginsburg was on the court or um, who were impacted by decisions um, along the way, um, when whether she was um, as a federal judge or when she was actually herself an attorney for the ACLU. So it was, I think for me as a strategist, I took a lot from that, just the determination and the thinking and um, really a, a, a life that is dedicated to change. Yeah, that, that documentary was super good. Anyone who hasn't watched it, I do know it's available for free on Hulu uh, and you can rent it on all all the other major platforms. And she really had an impact on all of our lives, right? You might not see it directly, uh, but the big thing that she always fought for was um, equal protection under the 14th Amendment covers uh, discrimination based offsets, right? And so um, that fight really to defend, let's just say half of the country, right, with all women was super important and led to so many different impacts and changes and opportunities uh, to uh, be better and to at least be moving towards a more equal world. And when I was watching the documentary with my wife and, and she was very emotional about it. And, and my wife makes more money than me. She's more successful than me. Uh, and, you know, she was really emotional because she was like, wow, this woman, um, you know, along with a lot of other people will also say that, uh, but the things that she fought for and stood up for against uh, what a lot of society was saying has provided her the opportunity to um, be in a, a position of influence and to uh, work on her own, right, and pursue a career. Uh, and her life might look so much different if um, 
Ruth and many other people didn't stand up uh, for those rights. And it's just absolutely, uh, I'm, I'm so happy that the modern generation is getting all this information and that she is kind of becoming this icon forever, right? I feel like she is getting eternalized in this iconic stature because it's so important for people that have this kind of impact on our society to be remembered forever. And I think to, to know um, one quick note, what exactly she has done, especially if, you know, a woman is out there and she's very much an independent woman, because that was something that was new for me to learn how much of a hand she had in these different uh, policies. Like the fact that, you know, with me talking about homes and eventually moving towards home ownership, I wouldn't have an opportunity to do that if it wasn't for her. I wouldn't have an opportunity to open my own bank account or a lot of these different things. If I have children, I wouldn't be able to do that and work. Um, she has done so much for a lot of women. And I, I, felt, I don't think a lot of us were aware that she had her hand in that way. And especially kind of probably like you're saying with your wife, um, the women that we are able to become today, we have to give her credit for laying that groundwork and hearing the no's first, you know, that we don't have to hear in those ways. We still have a long way to go, but I was very um, intrigued to learn how much she opened doors for us in that way. So can I, I, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say just as there was something that as you as you said that, that it reminded me of my reaction during the film that how different the world was when she was, you know, working for the ACLU and going to the Supreme Court to try to, you know, make these laws change. Like, there were things that just seemed so minor and insignificant. I'm like, it was such a... <laughs> For me, it was such a disconnect. I was like, why is there an issue with, I think one of the cases was, uh, I think a man who wanted to receive- um, Widow's benefits. I widow's benefits. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is, like, why would they deny that? Like, there, I just couldn't even like wrap my head around the fact that there was a time, there was a world where you could legally discriminate against men and women because that was the point that she was making that these laws hurt everyone not just yeah. women and I, it, it was much like you know I talked about it in episode one about my conversation about segregation um, with my grandmother that it, it it's hard to wrap my mind around the fact that someone could tell me I couldn't use a gas station restroom when I'm on a cross-country trip like it I'm just like who how could someone do that but that was perfectly the norm and not just the norm it was enshrined in the law so the person who's discriminated against you is protected and you're not so i i think that was also my reaction to thinking about how different the world looks and how my own way of thinking and expectations are are different because the law has changed and so long ago while still within her lifetime but before my lifetime that as we move forward, I, I, I guess I'm a bit more hopeful that we can continue to build upon that um, because obviously there's still more work to do. Um, we, we know that uh, in a lot of instances, there's still discrimination, gender discrimination. So there's, there's still additional work to do. But I think what, if I got anything from Ruth, Justice Ginsburg, I want to make sure I'm 
Correct. And that was something that was um, mentioned, I think, in the film where it's, it's like, no, we call her Justice Ginsburg. Uh, we, we don't call her Ruth. So Justice Ginsburg, uh, if I got anything, it's that she had, she spent time laying the legal foundation for us to be able to continue uh, building upon. And so I think that that for me uh, is the big takeaway. Like the world that she was working to dismantle we don't want to go backwards and we don't want to rebuild it. We want to keep moving forward down that path. Yeah, no, when, when we consider who is next going to be sitting in that chair, we all hope that uh, they will continue to create progress and move forward and not go back. That is uh, I, the big concern that is on the table as of right now. So someone else we want to shout out, uh, and I'm really glad that we got to bring this up because I know after the last episode, uh, we didn't, but that was uh, John Lewis, right? And John Lewis also has an extremely big impact on our society and his involvement with uh, the government and the changes that happened from uh, famous March walking in Selma. Uh, but he also, if you don't know who he is, uh, was a U.S. representative for the Georgia's 5th Congress Congressional District uh, for more than 30 decades. Or I'm sorry, 30 three decades, 30 years. Uh, and uh, let's talk a little bit in just remembrance of him and um, the, the impact that he had on our society as well to give him the appropriate acknowledgement as well. Uh, Vanessa, I see you nodding. So let's start with you. Yeah, like the thing that's coming in my head is just hearing in his voice, um, good trouble, <laughs> getting into good trouble. And um I think where when you look at with um, Justice Ginsburg being kind of like that steady flowing force, like John Lewis was very much like, I'm going to be out here. I'm going to get into good trouble. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to, you know, be almost beaten to death. But he really um, knew the severity of us having um, certain civil rights being implemented. He I just think about when he was in that march and I believe he was 17. He may have been younger, but I believe he was in that range um, mm -hmm. in the initial uh, march on Selma and just coming across um, the bridge and being met with, you know, law enforcement and knowing what's waiting for you. It's just, I really just imagine like, is that something I could ever face? Is that something that I could ever do? I really think the individuals of this time, they just had such a tenacity and such a hope that, you know, things could change. And they were really unrelenting in, in following that and seeing through. Um, so that's something that I love about him and just how he never gave up. And then once he was able to get into certain doors, um, always fighting for us, even up until, you know, almost the end of his life. Like, I love the picture of seeing him and, you know, he's more frail. You can see that, you know, he may be having some things going on, um, but going out to like the Black Lives Matter Plaza and seeing him just taking that in. It's like, you are an activist up until the end. And that is something that is so inspiring to me because um, I think something that these individuals represent is what I call like lifelong community fighters and kind of how we mentioned they're in these roles in these positions for 30 plus years. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of with our generation, it's like, we're ready to be done with the job after five years. And it's just kind of like, how do you 
you know, but it's, it's in their heart. It's, it's what's pushing them, propelling them to want to see change, even if it's change that they don't get to enjoy in their lifetime. And that's something that I love about John Lewis that on the one hand, I'm sad about that he passed seeing things, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But I am glad that he was able to see and realize that he had a mark um, on our country, on the world, and that, you know, he got into good trouble for us and we were able to reap some of those benefits. So I really, really appreciate his life and his legacy. So I should jump in, can I? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I feel like we're still getting used to this uh, format where we've now added, like it's either, it's you, before it was just two people, so it's just back and forth, then there's a third person like, okay, so who goes like, next? Who wants to go next? <laughs> okay, so who's, who's job? Whose job is it to, who to speak next? No, I mean, you know, I, I'm so excited that we got to bring up John Lewis because, um, you know, I watched uh, Good Trouble, I think it was last weekend, and it had been on my list for a while, um, but I I just hadn't gotten around to it and I watched it and there were there were so many things I didn't know about his life and I love the term lifelong community fighters like that is the, the we need that on a t-shirt because I feel like right. that <laughs> that is a constant reminder of who I mean when we talk about like so far I brought up you know Thurgood Marshall we've talked about Ruth Bader Ginsburg now we're talking about John Lewis I mean we're, when we talk about those people the reason why we talk about them is because it they dedicated their lives, literally their entire lives, to social action. And we do live in a world today where uh, social action can be fleeting or it can seem like, well, I, I did this one thing. I donated some money over here or I voted over here and I'm done. Or I went to the protest yesterday and I'm done. That's not the lesson that I take from any of these individuals. Uh, and, and John Lewis, I think, in a very powerful way, I mean, the violence that he faced. And I kept thinking to myself, I don't think I could have done what he did. Uh, I, I just don't. I don't think that that's who I would ever be. Uh, and the amount of strength that it takes to put yourself in harm's way and continue to believe that you're doing the right thing that, and no matter what comes your way, you're still doing the right thing. I mean, he was in the hospital at one point having gotten hit in the head uh, during a protest and he came right out and started protesting again. And it was, and I, I you know, I don't know. I think I would have reflected on that a little bit differently uh, to, be, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, and, but he had that type of personality and he truly believed in the cause. And so I think for me um, to see a film, and I, I, I guess the other thing I, I take away from this is I'm glad that I'm able to live during the time when um, John Lewis uh, was still with us, right? Uh, so I got to see him on TV. I was familiar with him as a congressperson. And I also got to hear his words. And it's different than, you know, when I read something like The Narrative Life of Frederick Douglass, where I can understand the person conceptually. I can read biography, uh, you know, I can read history books or, or biographies, or I can read, or I can watch a documentary, but I don't really get to see the emotions or who the person was beyond um, the, the social action that we talk about. You know, we got this 
see john lewis loved chickens and that was a big part of who he was like the, ch the ch really like even in his office he had chicken like little chicken figurines and that went all the way back to his childhood and you know i don't i don't know that about some of the uh, other historical figures who were alive you know pre-social media pre-tv pre-radio right so i i appreciate that that i was able to get all of that, not just, you know, the sacrifice that he made and the how, how deeply invested he, he was in the cause, but also that he was a whole person. And all of us deserve the opportunity to be the, a whole person, but also <laughs> we should be fighting for the change that we want to see in the world. Um, and so that's that to me, I think, um, is I, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable that in the same month we've lost these two like powerhouse incredible iconic figures uh within huge movement that that helped continue huge movements within society and i know um with justice ginsburg she was inspired by the civil rights movement and uh the work that um sorry i'm blanking that john lewis was involved with in the beginning and it, it's very interesting how not necessarily they're both like directly connected, but how their actions have both uh, moved forward and progressed and the longevity and the commitment and the consistency with both of the work that they've done is just absolutely incredible. So sad that we lost both those people, but Mr. World Travel, you point out, I feel also very lucky to, uh, at least for a part of our lives to live in the time that they were also alive, right? And, and be part of now uh, remembering them and kind of uh, starting to immortalize their stories because the future generations will, will just be able to read and watch movies and and know them from that kind of context but not actually see uh some of the direct impacts that they were making in our society even here in 2020. Uh, and so there was one more person that we wanted to highlight here in the show that not a lot of people uh are gonna know about so we're hoping that maybe a few of you learn and this was from an article how we learned about this person was from the new york times and his name was James Jackson, uh, and he passed away on September 1st. And what he did is in 1976, he founded the Program for Research on Black Americans at the University of Michigan. Um, and he also uh, created the study in 1980 called the National Survey of Black Americans. And this was really important because um, it had always been about like, how do Black Americans compare to white Americans, right? And the article talks about how like, white Americans are the gold standard, right? And so what is wrong with black Americans was always how the data was collected in reference. And so he wanted to show, and he pretty much spent his whole life creating uh, data sets on understanding the African American experience, right? And showing that that was uh, not only very different from um, white counterparts, but also within the own community right? How there are different experiences and different changes. Um, and a quote here was, social science research is oftentimes problem focused, right? The questions tend to start with perspectives by asking what's wrong with black people, right? And uh, why that connected with so much with me, because Mr. Wallchild, you and I always talk about uh, always identifying the problem first, right? We don't usually spend enough time really finding that root cause of the problem. And I thought uh, that like encompassed that story perfectly, right? Like we were identifying the problem in the wrong way to begin, 
begin with, and that created a cascading effect of issues with how we were uh, learning about the broader state of America. And so um, I'll pass the mic to you guys, but I just think that uh, James Jackson was someone that we needed to recognize because his impact uh, is not obviously as well known as someone like John Lewis, but he should be recognized because the uh, work that he's done is incredibly powerful and long lasting. How about we start, Mr. Will Travel, with you? What, what, do you, what do you have to say? Yeah, no, I mean, you you said everything that I would have wanted to say, so that was perfect. Um, yeah, I, I think recognizing that that his work actually will live on because of the the Institute at University of Michigan, right? Correct. And yeah, so I think that that's important to, to keep in mind because although he was the head of the Institute for quite some time, there is a new head, and so the work continues, the survey continues. And I think the bigger thing, because to be honest, you sent me the article, and I had never heard of him, and I don't think that I even saw anything on social media about his, his passing. And so the idea that you know this obituary had, had come across your 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 screen and you made sure that you sent it to me i appreciate um and i think the idea of addressing and, and researching and, and and understanding the complexities of the african-american experience i think is very important i know uh, there are many people who recognize and say that uh, the experience is not one size fits all, but oftentimes in conversations, it, it sounds that way, that it, it's the black experience or the African-American experience. And the reality is that um, it, it's a lot more varied than that. And just like it is within any group of people where we are not all having the same experience at any given point in time. So, I appreciate that approach from a social science perspective because um, still to this day, we continue to have this what's wrong with uh, black people approach to uh, research that I, I find to be problematic because I think it, I think if you spend enough time thinking about the issue, you get to the same conclusion all of the time. So it's like, um, and we keep doing the same studies and over and over and over again. And it's like, all right, listen, when are we going to address the root cause here? Like, it, it, let's stop trying to fix black people because black people aren't the problem here. So what I get, what I what excited me was that this gives me an opportunity. Like, oftentimes, I like to be able to have evidence to 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 put my hand on and say and this is not just my opinion and so i think um keeping his work alive and, and making sure we're bringing it into a popular discussion because we're not you know this is a podcast and we're not a politicians we're not in government officials we're not folks who are doing anything differently than anyone else is doing we're living our lives and we're working and we're voting of course uh, but we also are taking the time to inform ourselves. And so this is something, you know, uh, the work of James Jackson is something that we can add to our um, sphere of influence. And hopefully that helps us to make better decisions. And what I also like about what we're doing with this podcast is we are documenting some certain things that are happening right now in the world. And I hope that in the future, someone comes along and listens to this episode. Uh, maybe it's 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And because his name was mentioned and his work was mentioned, that they'll know to go back and pull his work. Um, I think that's uh, something that uh, will be a good... You, 
reason why we've uh, taken the time today to really um, acknowledge him. And um, yeah, so I hope I hope it does have an impact long beyond our lives. I guess I'll I'll jump in and I really appreciate um, you, Mr. Well Travel, probably in the same way that you appreciate Connor passing it on <laughs> because I also, and I, I was sitting there thinking because going through, you know, two degree programs for social work, I'm like, I have never heard of this man. And that's baffling to me with all of the millions of research papers I've done that I kind of wish I was still in school now because I'm like, I would have loved to, you know, use him as a resource for different things, especially if I was talking about, um, you know, the black community, but I, I don't recall hearing of him. Maybe I did, but again, you know, a lot of focus in even in the education um, arena is going to be on studies that may have been conducted you know, around the gold standard, as they say, white Americans. So um, I really enjoyed learning more about his life and, and what he's done. And, you know, while he may not be a household name, he really has an impact and done a lot of things that can make an impact for the way we view our lives. And I do love the fact that he didn't look at um, Black Americans as like this lump of people, as so many people in our society and community, you know, that's how they view you know, Black people, I can think about being in a lot of situations as like the only Black person in the room. And if there's something that comes up that's related to anything Black, <laughs> everyone's kind of like looking at me like, so what do you think about that? And it's like, I'm not the spokesperson, you know, for all of the Black community. I'm a very different person, you know, what one person's Black experience and, and experience in the world may be very different than my experience. So I like the fact that he you know, was like, I need to put a spotlight on the fact that not only are, you know, Black individuals, we have our own life, we have our own style, we have our own things going on, but we're also different from each other in the same way that other communities are. And I think um, there was one part in that article that was um, referencing something he said, and I, I don't, I probably won't get it exactly right, but I'll kind of paraphrase it, where um, he was saying that a lot of times they looked at um, research and data for Black people and was saying, you know, what is the problem with them? And he was kind of saying, make it more solution focused and say, despite all that Black people have gone through, how are they able to succeed? Yeah. And mm -hmm. so when he made that comment, I was like, I love that because similar to what you're saying, it's not looking at just the problems and not addressing the reactions but what are the root causes of things? And what are ways that we are succeeding in the community that can be highlighted and that is noteworthy? Given all of all that has been um, built into the society and, and into the laws and everything against you know, the black community, the fact that you see so many able to be successful and rising, there should be more study and more focus on that than just looking at the problems. It's the same that we, any other community would want. If you want to focus on the benefits, the, the successes, that's the same thing that, you know, the Black community wants to have focus on as well, especially at the African-American community because of what we have given and, and done to really be a part of the fabric of this country, so. Well, I think that leads us probably to the conclusion of the show. I feel like we covered so much. I'm looking at the clock now and be like, we, we always want the show to be like an hour and then we just keep going. <laughs> um, but uh, rest in peace to Justice Ginsburg, John Lewis, and James Jackson. Uh, we want to publicly 
thank all three of them for their contributions to our society, um, try to somewhat immortalize them in our own way for the impact that they had on our lives and how all three of them dedicated their lives to bettering their communities, right? And the action that they took to uh, make their communities better. And that's kind of what we're all about here. Our community as a verb is, is highlighting all of these amazing people, whether past or present or maybe future, that are benefiting their community. And so that leads us to Vanessa, our first guest here on Community is a Verb. Thank you so much for being on the show, for kind of uh, taking this journey with us and being the first guest. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate you. How about we give you one last shot here on the show. Uh, tell us one more time who you are, what you're working on, how people can connect with you, um, and any important message you want us to share. This is your podium, your stage to, to say whatever you'd like. Sure. Well, thank you. First off, you know, thank you, Connor and Mr. Well Travel for having me. I really appreciate being the first guest. Um, it's been a great conversation and you guys are also doing great work for the community at large. So I really, really appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, I think as a final note that I would just love to leave people with is, you know, while we look at the individuals that we've talked about, you know, their lives are seem so um their impact seems so huge and it might you know discourage some people from getting started in wanting to have social action or a community impact and one thing the same way i'm trying to encourage myself i just want to encourage others you know just start somewhere like if you know that you're not you know in policy making or any of those things if there's something that you want to do in your community that you think would impact it feel free to start doing that if you want to start a podcast feel free to let your voice be heard. There's so many ways we can all, you know, make one little impact and, and do our part that can change our communities and hopefully our world as we go forward and to be consistent. I think that's something I'm taking away from this and that I want to encourage people to do as well. Just get started and keep it going. Um, but the best way to find me, so I'm not a content creator or any of these things. I'm just, you know, a regular girl trying to get my voice out there. But um, you, I have the podcast with my sister. So that is the Undefined Good Girls podcast. You can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, we have an Instagram that we're trying to start and get up and running. But that is at Undefined Good Girls podcast on Instagram. And you can follow my personal Instagram. And that's Nessa at Nessa underscore Janae. So J-A-N-A-Y. Um, you can follow me there and I'm trying to do better on social media <laughs> as a whole and just being more present. So hopefully I'll do that, but I would love to, you know, follow you guys and, and see what you have going on and get some dialogue going. So that's what's going on with me. <laughs> well, I think that's awesome. And I'm following uh, you, of course. Um, I want to thank you as well for coming on the show. And I really have enjoyed the discussion with you. Uh, it's so interesting to meet someone in this format that I, you know, I've, I've, I feel like we've been, you know, following each other for probably some years now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've never actually met you. And so having a conversation with you like this is awesome. Um, it feels uh, really like normal, actually, and organic. And so I, I really, I really like that. Um, and I have uh, a great appreciation for the work that you and your sister are doing with your podcast. Um, and Thank you for talking a little bit more about that because it really has given me a better understanding of sort of 
what your impact is and what, what you're able to, uh, or what you're trying to accomplish with, with it. So many people have podcasts, right? Yeah. And some are really interesting and some are okay, but um, I, you know, I think you've, you really got something with this one and I hope that we can see it grow and um, hear about you on, you know, one of these popular shows where they bring in commentators. <laughs> they bring, bring in you because I like your perspective and I think the world needs more of it. Oh, thank um, you. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, okay, so I want to ask Connor what Connor's working on, because normally Connor asks this question, so I want to flip it real quick, and I want to say, Connor, what are you working on? Because I, I saw something online this week that I really want you to talk about, uh, so um, what, what are you working on? What, do, what have you got going, Connor? Uh, so one, thank you for bringing it up, by the way, uh, one of the initiatives that I took on this month was we have an event called Dining Out for Life that happened this past week and Dining Out for Life here in Seattle that happens all over in lots of different cities. But here in Seattle, it promotes a company locally called Lifelong and Lifelong is a organization dedicated to fighting uh, against problems with AIDS and HIV. And so every year what they do is they partner with these restaurants uh, for Dining Out for Life and the restaurants take a portion of the proceeds of that night and they donate them to Lifelong's program, which is called the Chicken Soup Brigade which uh, also helps uh, people in tough situations have food, right, and resources. And over the last six months, they've had to double their capacity because we all know why there's a growing need for those kind of services. But that's a tough situation because restaurants are also in a very difficult situation right now. And so they had to change their system this year. And some restaurants still participated, but they were more asking for the community instead of uh, having the restaurants drive a primary set of the donations. They were saying, hey, please go support these businesses. Some of them are making donations on their own, but along with eating out, please make your own donation. And uh, I have a friend who runs a company called Viaduct and he creates clothing that is uh, kind of like culturally resembles our city, right? And so whether that's like sports or uh, different things that are going on, monuments, uh, icons of the city and he creates merchandise for it and so we collaborated on a shirt that uh, was originally designed for uh, pandemic relief it says socially distanced since uh, 1887 or 1889 I'm sorry and uh, so what I did is I put the shirt on my website and he put it on his and we donated all of the profits to uh, dining out for life for any of the sales and uh, so yeah it was a cool way to generate a couple extra hundred dollars or a couple hundred dollars for the cause by selling these fun t-shirts that we made and donating the money to dining out for life and it was just a, a fun thing that it was like what what are the things that we both have right he's like i have this design skills these shirts that we know how to design and publish and promote and i have a platform to get the message out so why not take all of those tools that we have and put it together for a good cause uh, so I think this is something that we are going to continue. So I'm sure I'll bring it up on the show, but we want to do, uh, whether it's quarterly or monthly, we're going to do a different design uh, representing some um, cause or organization and the city that we live in. And there'll always be a donation aspect to the sale of every shirt to a different nonprofit or community here within our city. And so if you're interested in the shirt, you can find it at findmeinseattle.com slash shop. And uh, I know, uh, 
we don't have Apple Pay on there right now. I apologize, Mr. Well Traveled. I will work on it uh, here this week to figure out why we can't. But uh, PayPal, credit cards, all those other forms are taken there. And uh, keep an eye out for more clothing to come. Thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate you giving me the, the platform to talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really cool way uh, to take social action. And, and that is what we are all about here. That's what that's why we started this podcast. And I think it's important to show the different different ways a person can take action. Um, and, you know, I think with that, uh, as always, you know me, I'm, I'm all about the voting rights and making sure we are fighting back uh, against voter suppression. So work continues with the app. We're hoping to have it, you know, launched on the um, Apple App Store at the beginning of October. That's of course, going to depend on a few factors. But uh, yeah, we're still trying to get it out there before the election. And so if you want to follow that journey, please feel free to go to at Next Up City on Instagram. Uh, that's where I document that whole process. And I've got some cool content that I've also created that um, you can feel free to share uh, with your followers uh, because voter suppression is real. And while we cannot change the drivers of voter suppression right now ahead of the election, we can educate ourselves and we can arm ourselves to fight back. Excellent. And you got a big road trip coming this week to head to Texas. I think I'm really yes. excited for you to check in here on the show uh, about what's going to happen because you're going to be in Texas for the election. Um, and that is going to be very, very excited to hear um, the things that you have to share and how this app launch goes because it's, I think, a, a critical and important piece of technology that you're launching to to help fight against voter suppression. So thank you very much as always, Mr. Well-Traveled and Vanessa, thank you for being our first guest. We appreciate everyone for listening to the show and we will see you in another two weeks for episode four. Bye. Thanks.